And we are back. You're listening to God Geeks. I'm Pastor James Cleland here with Joey Bluegie and Pastor Lawton Thompson. Pastor Joey, too, by the way. All pastors now. Yay. Uh, and we are three pastors. Three Walk pastors. into a studio. <laughs> <laughs> and we are talking about the intersection between culture and worship today. Specifically, we had a project we had to work on together. Had to. Got to work on together. It was a privilege. It was a privilege. Where we focused on medieval worship and Lawton, can you explain our, our big takeaways from that and how maybe they tie into worship today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of one of the things that I want to focus on or kind of the big thing is participation in worship. Because uh, that changes over the course of time. We, as the church expands, they're trying to figure out what exactly... <laughs> What is church, right? Like, You're talking like first, second, third, like, fourth. Yeah, century. this is way early, way, yeah. way early. So like we're pre-medieval, right? Okay. So we're we're still apostolic era. Jesus has ascended. What do we do? Yeah. When right? you say apostolic era, you're talking the the apostles, the apostles are still alive. <laughs> like they're still alive. And so really they're going around and they're telling people about Jesus. And so it's not been the church has not been institutionalized, right? Oh, okay. It's still, we still have the institution of the church. Right. But but not what we would think of as church today, as the you know, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church okay. of America. Like, okay. It's not a it's not a building somewhere where we, you know, meet and make declarations and then we have these other little congregations not that those things are bad per se no they're not bad per se but but that's that's not we weren't there yet in the history of the church surely because of numbers i think i think because of numbers and because of proximity right early on they were pretty close to one another and you knew who was there so you know even once paul uh is converted you know he's saul and -hmm. jesus comes and says hey man why are you persecuting me Mm mm-hmm he has a whole change of heart. Hard not to when you meet <laughs> God like that. Uh, but even then, you know, they know who Paul is. There's a little, some reservations on some parts. Yeah. Rightly so. But he's going out on his missionary journeys, but you still have a familiarity. So there's not okay. this need at the beginning. Then it starts to institutionalize, right? In Jerusalem, you've got the guys there and it's in, we're beginning to take shape. But, but worship then was very participatory. Yeah, I would say from what we can tell, there's much more of a more participation as a whole um, of the people there. Now, we don't know a whole lot about first century worship. It's kind of it's a little bit blurry. Okay, but fast forward, fast forward to kind of the fall of the Roman Empire. So we're slipping into the early Middle Ages. And this has all changed, right? Over the course of those centuries, we've built church buildings, we've sent missionaries mm-hmm. out over uh, over places. Um, the, the state has given its okay yes. for Christianity, and at that point, has even embraced Christianity. Right. So you know, Constantine says, mm-hmm. "Hey, Christianity is okay," mm-hmm. and things have happened. For example, um, you know, Frank Sen in his book Christian Liturgy. It, he writes about like even the different kinds of buildings now that have been constructed. So right. he talks about basilicas. He talks about these uh, other buildings called the tituli, yeah. um, which would be kind of like uh, your your house church. I, mean, I don't want to say house church in the sense of it's someone's house, but they're and you have deaconaries, which are like the the social help areas. Where but these were all 
buildings that the Roman Empire already kind of had and used. Well, I mean, these were these were church buildings. Oh, these they were would, church these, buildings. These were church buildings. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. so these things have developed, and what is happening at this time too is you've got you know accord, uh, across the course of the Roman Empire. You've got the ability to travel and go places, right? Mm-hmm. Roman roads are a big deal. And so the gospel has gone out. It's been beautiful over the over the course of those centuries, getting out to all the corners of the known world. But as that's happened, we don't have uh, the internet. We don't have the telephone. We don't have those way. Like, I can't email you an order of service, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so they've had to develop ways uh, to do that. When you say when you say order of service, yes, you're talking about literally the order of the the worship order service. of the service. Like they would call that an ordo, right? An ordo, which is just Latin for order. So we okay. can sound fancy saying that. <laughs> uh, you know, they and so they can't do that, and 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 they develop these different ways of trying to, I guess, codify what happens when we gather together mm-hmm. for corporate worship, and that's okay. when we all come together and we, you know, sing and. And so they had the sacramentaries, which was a book uh, for the celebrant. And that's the pastor that's leading uh, the rite of Holy Communion, right? So they have that book. They have the lectionary, which is a familiar term for us today if we're in the church world, right? That's sure. mm-hmm. that's the catalog of readings. Like, you know, we're going to read Luke 2 right here. Then we're going to... Oh, okay. So certain times of the year, you yes. eat certain things. And so we have that. Then we have the... I don't know how to pronounce this. Antiphonaries, I okay. think is how it's pronounced. And that's a choir right. book, right? Yeah, sure. Go with right? That. That's a choir book. So it's got the songs in it. Okay. And a lot of times these were, this is the large print edition. Uh, so if you've ever been sitting in church, large print edition uh, so that the whole choir can sing it. And then to tie it all together are the ordines. And that's like mm. the directions for the service. Now, now, Lawton, with these now, just, just for clarity... Yeah, you're talking early Middle Ages, correct? So, yeah. So, so this is so this is early. prior. This is not Gutenberg printing press yet. No, this no. is, I mean, these are there's so, not many of these books out. There. So this is kind of Carolingian Renaissance. Carolingian, right. I haven't heard that term. Yeah. So Carolingian Renaissance time. So we're no. early. Well, like we're the end of the early Middle Ages. Is we're talking talking like, talking right before William the Conqueror, et cetera. Yeah, a couple. 900s. Yeah, it's okay. right in there. Okay. You're right. So kind of in that time period, and and what's What's uh, happening at this time period is you still have participation by the laity in the service. So you and do, laity are that's just the people that are out there in the congregation. So they okay. didn't really have pews yet at that point. So when no, you came to there church, were, you would stand, right? You had to stand, right? So yeah. you would come there, and there was still an element where you would participate. Mm-hmm. Um, and even uh, as it was developing, right? We we know the uh, the chants of the Benedictine monks. If you've ever heard that, uh, it's really cool. But even at the beginning, that was simpler. So like mm-hmm. all of this at this time, they are trying to figure out how to properly worship together, and they're developing these things. And the the church is a part of this artist. I say artistic development because there is this beauty mm-hmm. to what they're trying to form uh, because they understand that the way they're doing this is forming the believers. So that body of believers that's gathering together are being formed by the things that they are doing in the rites that are in this mass or in this, uh, what we you know call today a church service or a divine service. So what I'm going to pause you for a second 
what are the the main elements in the orders? What are the ordos and the orders, if you will? What what things by this time are essential in a a uh, service? So you know when we're talking about the ordos or what's essential, then you have a variety of things. <laughs> so there's this you're gathering together. So a gathering, right? Uh, we might term this hospitality mm-hmm. today. Uh, then we've got this idea of reconciliation, confession, absolution. Yeah, yeah. We sing the Kyrie, right? Lord have mercy. So uh, there's there's that. There's this the proclamation. This is that word ministry. So we hear from from God's word, the scriptures. There's going to be a sermon, and uh, then there's also a gathering of gifts. And so we're flowing through this, and you can kind of see a flow between those gathered and the Lord, right? In confession mm-hmm. and absolution, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. And then we receive that forgiveness from God. We sing praises to him in the Kyrie. His word comes upon us and it it comes into our ears and it affects us. I mean, it, it changes us, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you've got this this flow and in response to that, we get to give gifts. That's one of those things that, you know, the the heart of a joyful giver um, responding to God's word at work in us. And another cool thing, one of the, one of my, if you can have favorite things, I love prayer uh, because we have a God that wants to hear from us. And so that's a mm-hmm. part of it too, is, is this intercession mm-hmm. um, praying. He wants, he wants us to communicate with him. And then we don't want to forget the Eucharist is really important. Yeah. Um, so, so that's Holy Communion, communion right? Yeah, Lord's that's Supper. The Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, the true body and true blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And then there's this idea of this sending blessing because we gather and then we scatter. We're sent out. Yeah. Um, and so those are important parts of worship. So those are still important today and they were important Absolutely. by the Middle Ages, if not, you know, they were important all throughout. Yeah. And and if I if I if I look at that, that is something that we need to be mindful of today as we're thinking about what our gatherings of believers mm-hmm. should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it not talking about instrumentation or the things that we normally devolve into when we want to have these little right. you know battles about it. But when we look at those elements in that service, that really stands to inform how we are forming believers, right? And then the same way that that's forming believers, how is the culture surrounding those believers forming what's happening there? So those, you know, thinking about gathering and hospitality, right? So when we're gathering together, what does that look like? Because that's going to look very different in urban settings in America versus a tribal setting. Well, versus a tribal setting in Africa today or versus eighth century, you know, Gaul, which is France. Yes. You know? (laughs) Um, And so we need to be mindful of that too, because we can have those rights and that flow, but the way it takes shape in a culture might be a little bit different. And we need to be respectful of that. So long as all of those things are pointing us towards Christ. Right. Right. That's, I mean, I think, and that's, that's because during the Middle Ages, yeah, we see shifts in the amount of participation in those different things. So, yeah. So as the centuries go on, right? So if we move forward from here, and uh, let me, uh, it's kind of this Romanesque Gothic period, right? We start 
building more things. Our cathedrals are going to get bigger, bigger, better. Um, bigger and better. And even if you look I don't at know about better, they get well, bigger, they get bigger. The, the, the I mean, they're really techniques cool allow them yeah. really cool stuff. Right. And, and, uh, and the spaces are intentionally designed as well. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, when we look at the participatory element, from an artistic standpoint, they're trying to get better at what they're doing. And so even like I, I mentioned Gregorian chant just a little while ago, mm-hmm. and it gets more and more complex. More polyphonic. And yes. And even the songs that they're singing are becoming more complex to the point where you almost have a professionalization. I don't know oh, if that's a word. Yeah. But of worship. And the language of the empire has changed also, but Latin has remained the language of the mass. And so there's a certain removal uh, of the laity from being able to participate or in many cases even actually understand what the heck is going on. Right. And so... You see this kind of recession of, of, you know, them being participants and more being observers of what's going on. Uh-huh. And this is leading into the late Middle Ages um, up towards the time of the Reformation. Which and was so, part of the issues of the Reformation then. Right. So we didn't just get there overnight. This was a gradual 500, 600, yeah. 700 year shift right as the culture around them changed maybe the church didn't and it's a lot of times especially as lutherans we look back to the reformation we're like oh man they were evil the catholic church right and i don't view it that way they were wrong in what they were doing but they got there because they got a little bit off track when they were trying to be you know they were trying to figure things out Mm -hmm. and we are all poor miserable sinners and so we're going to screw up and maybe sometimes people do things intentionally to get things off track. But I don't think there was this overarching nefarious attempt to get to, you know, excluding the laity. I think it was things like, for example, holding the Lord's Supper in such high regard that we're terrified if a crumb drops on the ground or if a drop of wine drops into someone's beard that we have just disrespected the Lord's right. true body and true blood, uh, that now in order to protect that, I'm going to pull that back. The lady can't participate mm-hmm. because, you know, I don't, I don't want to run that risk. And so we got to this point, and that's one of the things that Luther is talking about. He's like, hey, nobody can understand what's going on here. And even Luther wants that congregational uh, he wants that singing to be back in there. Now that doesn't happen in Luther's lifetime. He writes some hymns that takes a while, uh, but gradually participation comes back. Um, and even to today, although if you look around a congregation today, I would say that our congregational singing in many places is lagging a little bit. Yeah, we get a little bit self-conscious, and this is this is just my insight into this. So take it with a about a half a grain of salt. <laughs> but I think we get self-conscious because we don't teach people how to sing anymore as much, you know, with, with the secularization of education, that's not central. I went to Lutheran day school and singing was a daily thing. I sang every day in Lutheran day, in day school. Right. And so I think we get a little self-conscious. I don't know how to sing. And so we're quiet and we get a little bit more focused on, well, God needs me to sound good rather than I just need to lift up the voice that God's given me in praising my maker who rescued me from sin, death, and the devil. And so we've kind of come full circle almost. 
yeah. in, in this whole participation thing. Well, and what's interesting with you say, you know, you've got me thinking about something here, Lawton. What is it that, you know, I can go to Bush Stadium here in St. Louis, go to a baseball game, and it doesn't matter how good of a singer you are, you're standing up for the seventh inning stretch and you're just, you're singing away. What What is it that gets the participation at events like that, but why... Why the timidness when it comes to church? Oh, man. So this is a hot button topic right here. And this might not be a popular thing to say, but here's what I'm going to say. In our modern context, we have pushed church, or I shouldn't say church, but we have church pushed faith to the fringes. In other words, whereas in Reformation era and in that time period up until the Enlightenment, Faith was really at the center. God, the, the reality of God was at the center. And post-enlightenment, where we're at now in this age of reason, is a place that says man is at the center. And so what we've done is we've pushed faith into the private, we've, we've privatized faith. So it has to be out of the public life. And so rather than us feeling like I can talk about this anytime or I can, or, or having this gathering once a week, you know, being the center that that is a part of my life, it's now more a, a conversation of, oh, you believe in Jesus? That's really cool. I love that you do. I don't. Please don't talk to me about it. <laughs> right. And so I think it's been relegated into the corners of our life. And that's actually baked almost into the very fabric of our being. As post-enlightenment people, we are born into a reality. So so what you're saying is culture kind of informs our life and informs our faith, but faith really informs our culture too. It's kind of cyclical. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. There's there's a reality that we live in that that all these things are connected, whether we like it or not, but because our faith has been relegated to the, like it's been privatized into the corner of our life, mm. there's a lot of ways in which our culture ends up forming and shaping our faith rather than our faith forming and shaping our culture. That's a great point. Let's come back to that in a moment. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about today, how we see this going on. And Joey, I'm going to ask you some questions about online church and modern worship and all those different things. So we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to God Geeks. I'm Pastor James Cleland, and with me is Pastor Lawton Thompson and Pastor Joey Bluegy. We were uh, blessed to have a course in worship and culture and the intersection of the two with Professor Marriott at Concordia Seminary. And Joey, I've got a question for you. We kind of left it hanging in the last segment about this intersection between culture and faith. Um, and we looked at it kind of historically through the Middle Ages, how there was a change from uh, the participation level, if you will, of the laymen over time till we got to the point in the late medieval period, right before the Reformation, where the average person was just kind of standing there, maybe sitting by that point. We had pews by then and didn't quite always know what was going on. The, the language being used was the old language of the church, yet the culture had changed over time and was using a different language, both literally and figuratively. And I feel like today that is sometimes the case in our church where 
our church is using language that is historical to us that we have been faithful with for centuries, but maybe the culture around the church has changed to the point where the language we're speaking is not the language that the culture is speaking. But then we've got this other thing going on where maybe we, in reaction to this, start trying to change the language of the church to meet the culture where it's at and in some ways lose those important things of worship that have been historically part of worship. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I appreciate, James, how you use the word language there, because, you know, as, as Lutheran pastors, you know, I, I do firmly believe that, you know, the book of Concord that helps us understand the scriptures that that just gives us our meaning and understanding of the scriptures it does speak the truth of what the scriptures have to say to us. You sound like a Lutheran pastor. Book of Concord. What is that? Y- you know, you know, looking at, you know, how we interpret the scriptures, uh-huh. it, that that doesn't change how we interpret it. Now, again, you use the word language, which I think was super important here because mm-hmm. the language, though, has changed. So the truths stay the same, but the language in which we have to speak it has to change to match the culture sometimes. It, it, it'd be like, you know, if if you only speak French and I only speak English, I can speak the truth to you all day long in English yeah. and, and we're not going to understand it. No. We're going to be talking past each other. Yeah. And, and so how as a church today do we take the truths of scriptures that, you know, as, as a Lutheran pastor, we interpret it through our confessions. And, and how do we speak that to the culture we're sitting at, whether it be a, a Western civilization, whether it be in an urban context, a rural context? Um, or it may be a different context throughout the globe. So, so that's the challenge that we have as the church, but that is also the opportunity that we have. As so church. you're totally picking up what I'm putting down, which is language is something that changes over time. Quite literally language is something that changes, um, geographically, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. It can even change, um, by zip code. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But we use other languages to communicate. We use music as a language to communicate. We use um, art uh, as a language to communicate. We use food to communicate. We use um, architecture to communicate. And all of these things are different depending on what culture you're in, yet they can all be incorporated as ways to proclaim the gospel. And as Lutheran pastors, we do that faithfully using the Book of Concord, our confessions to kind of interpret scripture and and um, help people understand what it means. Within that context of our confessions, we can do some pretty beautiful things. And and, and how does that look maybe in, in the quote-unquote modern church in your experience? Yeah, no, no, that's a really good question right there. So I I think the biggest thing that stands out as, as a Lutheran pastor is is this idea of Article 4, which is justification by grace. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Article just, 4 of the Augsburg, of the Augsburg Confession. Confession. Yes, such a yes. Lutheran pastor. But, but this justification by faith alone through uh-huh. Christ alone that is that is the beauty of the scriptures of how That's this our principle is, on how we this is it's God's gift everything. to us. There's yeah. nothing we can do to work for our salvation. It is God's. He literally gives us a gift that He doesn't have to give us. And so, how does that play out in our lives and the culture today? What does it look like to show grace to your neighbor? What's it look like to show grace to your community? What's it, I, I mean, as as we wrestle with those things, that's how we we bring this out. We don't we don't go show this grace to our neighbor because it's on on the the fact that we need it for our salvation that's not what we do it for at all mm-hmm. we do it as just the fruit of having already received the very grace that god has given us why wouldn't we want others to receive that same gift 
And so that's, it, it, it's really our motive for what we do um, because of what Christ has already done for us. That's awesome. So we had a guest in class, Cantor mm. Philip Magnus, who is Cantor. I mean, it's, it's an interesting term. Do you, do you know what it means? Yes. Well, so he's he's a lead musician. Cantor yeah. is typically the one that leads vocally. But as Dr. Marriott talked about, he's also a fantastic pianist as well. Yes. And he came and spoke to our class. Can, can you briefly give us a rundown? I know you were really paying attention. I could see it on your face. Can you give us a rundown kind of um, the takeaway from Cantor Philip Magnus? Yeah. For me, one of the biggest takeaways was, I think it was his thesis of the whole thing, but the song of the church builds us up in Christ. Mm. Let me say that again. The song of the church builds us up in Christ. Now, what did he mean by the song of the church? He's talking about psalms, hymns, and other spiritual songs that we see throughout the scriptures. And it's, it's this idea of of teaching through music. Mm-hmm. And it and you, you take a guy like Philip Magnus, and what an incredible gift he is to the church from um, here in the States to going overseas to Africa and teaching music. And he teaches it in a way that people don't become dependent on him, he wants the community to own it. Yeah, and that is that is an incredible way to teach. To where it it doesn't revolve around you as the leader, it revolves on teaching the community so that that community can t- continue to build each other up in the name of the Lord. Um, I I just thought he gave a fantastic presentation and just thankful for the ministry work he's doing here and and across the globe. Yeah, I thought it was great. He gave an example of. You know, people can sit there and listen to your sermon and tune you out or pick the things they want to agree with. They'll do the same thing in Bible class. I know I've done it, right? But when everyone is singing those songs, the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs that we have, you can't ignore it. It, it becomes enculturated in you. It becomes your, your, your habit, if you will. It gets stuck in your head. Joey, let, let's move on a little bit. You, I don't want to miss this chance because you did it for years. Tell me, Tell me about online church and maybe the pros and and cons or or the 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 benefits of it and maybe ways that um it is lacking when it comes to those those orders that we talked about earlier well you know who would have thought two years ago we're recording this in 2022 right now but two years ago in 2020 almost to this day when Mm -hmm. when you know we really shut down here in the united states who would have thought that there'd be a time where church would go online. It, it, it was just, it, it was something that some churches were doing, but we weren't sure if that's where we we're going there. And then boom, all of a sudden there was a catalytic event to go, we got to get there. And so as, as you ask about the pros and cons, I think that's the beauty of, of the power of the word. The word can be transmitted through a variety of means. The word is powerful, whether it is you and I speaking together in a room, whether it's being transmitted over a microphone, whether it's coming to you through the internet. God's word has power and it can it can speak through all kinds of mediums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we can we can forget that. And there were people that were blessed by the word. I could you know, we could spend plenty of time. I could share plenty of stories. I know we don't have time for that here, but of people whose lives were changed because of that. I mean, how many of us today don't have a Bible app on our phone or right. have have watched a devotional on on these variety of things? And so I think that's a big pro of it. Obviously, I think God has created us as relational beings. He has created us to be together in community. Uh, the, one of the big objectives that we had as um, a church that, and, and, and speaking of our church, it wasn't, you know, my part was online, part of a physical church as well. It wasn't mm-hmm. just an exclusive online church. The big thing for us was how do we bring people full circle? 
So to with that, if if starting online is a great place for you or someplace that you need it and and we want you to be there, that's that's great. We also wanted to know how can we connect you to a physical community? That was that was a big deal for us. One of the ideas that we didn't actually get to that I, I had a hope for um, was if people were in an area that, you know, wasn't close to our physical campus, was there a way that we could connect them in person for a small group or events like that so that the people that you worship with online, now you're fellowshipping together in person and being together in person. I think that was one thing that was really lacking during the pandemic was being together in mm-hmm. person. And now that that's starting to come back, it's a it's a beautiful thing to see people gathering together again. And that's just part of the creation that God has made us together to be together. Um, so pros and cons with online, we could spend a lot of time on that. But I think if there's a big pro is the word is powerful. It can be transmitted through any medium and we can't forget that um, just the power of the word of God. That's awesome. And and to kind of summarize, cultures throughout history have gathered around the word. All around the world, they've gathered around the word, word and sacrament. And we have sung throughout history. We've used different languages, different architecture, different songs to point towards Christ, to point towards the good news of Christ. And Lawton, you you shared a quote with me before we started recording that I thought was just really great and a, and a good one we can end on. Yeah, this points to where we're at today. It's a little bit of an exhortation, you know, it's a little bit of a, a of a statement of, hey, church, maybe we should think about this a little differently. <laughs> um, and it's in an article written by this guy named Anthony Ugolnik uh, back in 1997. He's you know very Eastern uh, European sounding name. He was Russian, grew up behind the Iron Curtain. He wrote this in 1997. Uh, it's called Culture, Faith, and the American Academy. And he talks about how um, the Bible has become this object of scientific inquiry for the Hmm. academy. It's a fascinating thing. But the quote that really struck me in this article is this. It says, find your artists then and empower them. We've made our churches into businesses, into public relations firms, into social service centers, into everything but what they are, reservoirs of the spirit in a spirit-hungry world. And so I think what he's driving at here is the church was a curator of culture. It was cyclical to where our faith informed our lives and our lives informed our faith. And we've come to a place where we're consumers of culture and faith has been sidelined. And so that intersection of faith and culture or worship in culture is not maybe exactly where it should be today. And we might, we might want to reflect on a little bit of that as church. So, so what you're saying is we need more God geeks. Yes. People who geek out about culture and geek out about theology and who love the intersection between culture That's and theology. Right. You've been listening to God Geeks. I'm Pastor James Cleland. Pastor Joey Belugi here. And Pastor Lawton Thompson. Thank you for listening during this extra large, supersized episode. It, yes, it was an assignment for Dr. Jim Marriott, but we wanted to share it with you too. And uh, they won't all be this long. God Geeks will be back this summer with some exciting new changes and a new co-host 
The Reverend Frank Hart has agreed to be my new co-host. Oh, Frank, that's awesome. <laughs> so get ready, God Geeks. We're going to be uh, way more consistent with dropping episodes. And if you listened all the way to this point, you deserve this good news that Frank is going to be joining God Geeks. I'm Pastor James Cleland. Thank you for joining us. Christ be with you. Blessings on your day. 